This is the 966. Richard, episode 90. Mabruk. Episode you, 90. I'm doing great. How are you? How are you all up in Riyadh? I'm doing well. Thank you. As we discussed right before jumping on, I'm uh, extraordinarily jet lagged um, and I just have not done anything about it. So it gets worse. And so today I'm going to sound probably really tired, everybody. And I apologize in advance and I apologize to you as well, Richard. Um, if I say anything not correct, just sort of let me correct it in the next episode, maybe, and we'll have a long corrections list. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Well, as you as we were talking about, you know, and especially when it starts getting hot, you know, it seems like every evening event goes, you know, starts later in the night, goes later in the night. And as you said, you're drinking coffee. So you're rolling in at 1 a.m. or whatever in the morning after having a wonderful visit all amped up. Uh, it just it, 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 it all mitigates against actually, you know, bad jet lag. Yep, 100%. And, uh, you know, Richard, I am a coffee addict and that I really love Saudi coffee. So when I get here, I fill up on it and get my fill, <laughs> which is becoming an additional problem. You can actually see I have a dollar right there, which I need to avoid for the rest <laughs> of the night. Um, so we'll, we will see. But Riyadh is lovely. It's very happening as well. And Richard, we have a very special episode for episode 90 this week. We have Saudi entrepreneurs Sarah Bin Laden and Renat Al-Jeffrey recent win fellows they joined the 966 to discuss their experiences and journeys to date really cool conversation with them coming up um richard and we we are getting continually more and more feedback and exciting um emails and messages and comments on youtube and whatsapp and um all over the place it's really really nice and we love hearing from you guys um we got this review richard on apple podcast from xok uh, called the podcast fascinating, a fascinating look into all aspects of Riyadh and Saudi happenings. As an expat about to move to Riyadh for two years, I am very appreciative for the in-depth insights provided into this country, determined to become more open and welcoming, but still mysterious and enigmatic. I think we would agree with that, Richard. Um, very nice yeah. review from XOK. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And if you haven't done uh, written us a review yet on Apple Podcasts, please do that there and toss us a follow, please, on YouTube as well, where you can get segments of all of this stuff broken out, sort of 966 snacks, as we call them, Richard. Um, another comment, Richard, I'd like to read as well, just before we get going from Trimax. He says, a, a, a loyal viewer on YouTube, he says, I'm, I'm sure you will cover this new statistic on a future podcast, but recently it's been revealed the number of SMEs in the kingdom surpassed 1.2 million after rising 88,000 in the past quarter. I wanted to compare to other countries and looking at Canada, the population of 38 million, GDP of 1.5 trillion, which has 1.1 million SMEs, and Saudi with a population of 32 million and a GDP of 1 trillion has slightly more SMEs. I couldn't find any breakdown per sector in, the, in Saudi to compare other countries, though. Uh, thoughtful comment from Trimax, uh, very well-informed listener. And viewers, so nice to hear from you as well. Yeah, thank you, Trimax. And you know what would really help? First of all, thank you for your comments because you are regular and and they're very intelligent comments. Mm -hmm. Please do some research on that. Let, let us know. We'll be happy to share it. <laughs> <laughs> Finish the we, research we and give us the info, and we'll share it. <laughs> you know, it, there is no back office here. This is it's just us. So you know, if, if we ever if we ever hit it big and got some real revenue, you know, we we'd have a support. But uh, no, we appreciate any input you can provide, Trimax. Thank you. 
Yep, he's he's wonderful. Richard, last one I heard from WhatsApp. We have to include something somewhat negative because we do get a lot of positive and some negative. Uh, heard this on WhatsApp. Lucian, you sound thirsty on the podcast. Please stay hydrated as the temperatures reach 110 while you were in, uh, while you are here in Riyadh. LOL. Okay, thank you. I will. Well, that's lovely. That's not a, that's not really negative. That's they're 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 concerned for your welfare. That's really that's really nice. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think they are. I think they're also talking a little smack. But I do have more coffee here, and this is my last cup. So this is it for today. I promise. So apologies for that. Um, okay, Richard, let's get going. What's your one big thing this week? Well, first of all, look. This is for you YouTube viewers. You can see I have. Oh, a, look uh, at a, that. A, 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 <laughs> can you see it? That is spectacular. Uh, Mr. Wilson is wearing an Al Ittihad Club shirt. That's so cool, Richard. Wait, can we see that one more time? Let me, let's get another look at that. You gave us only a short look. That is awesome. Yeah, yes. Cool, man. Ittihad <laughs> uh, FC Tigers. Uh, you know, the Jetta Club that uh, we've talked about on the show, uh, one of many. So obviously, uh, just 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 a tidal wave of news this week, Saudi news. And and we're 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 knee deep in it anyway. And but even we, I mean, it's just us, just so much stuff. And it's really interesting. And this is sort of what happens when you have processes that are underway and they break happen to break. Uh, all of a sudden, it's everyone discovers it when it's actually been in process. But let's talk about. So we had a special segment we did on golf, and hopefully, you guys, um, you know, our listeners have seen that. We'll catch that. It was fun and interesting and timely, and obviously, it's all the rage in terms of uh, Liv's partnership with PGA. Uh, we're going to focus. My one big thing is on the Saudi Professional League, which we've done segments on the Saudi Professional League before too. The, the football uh, league. Uh, which is near and dear to the hearts of, you know, millions and millions of Saudis. And the Etihad FC, obviously, you know, this is one of the uh, a major club and, uh, and, you know, engenders a lot of, you know, fanaticism and loyalty. So it's a lot of fun to talk about because it's a real thing in Saudi Arabia. So anyway, the, the public investment fund, PIF, is taking a 75% stakes in the four largest teams in the Saudi professional league. Al Nasser, well, Ronaldo, where, where Ronaldo is now, uh, Al Halal, Al Ahli, and Al Ittihad. Um, Nasser and Halal are in Riyadh. I believe Al Ahli and Ittihad, I know they're in Jeddah. So, in addition to the PIF taking a position, significant position, 75%, four other clubs will also come under the control of, of other companies backed by, by the, the state. So, so, for example, Saudi uh, Aramco will buy a stake in Al Qadzia. Neom has acquired an ownership of Al Sukor FC. The Duraya Gate Development Authority has invested in Al Duraya Club, and the Royal Commission for Al Ula has invested in Al Ula Club. So, this is all. Lucian, by the way, regrettably, our our plucky Al Faya Orange were not selected for new ownership investment. I um, I'm so, outraged. <laughs> so was, I don't know if the, I don't know if they didn't make the final cut if they're ever in, but we can. But anyway, so they're going to have to keep you know you know keep trying to do it on their own. Uh, anyway, in the in its announcement of the move, the PIF said this, and this is quote: "This sports clubs investment and privatization project unquote has been designed to create opportunities 
and the right environment for investment in the sports sector intended to raise levels of professionalism and administrative and financial governments and sports clubs while developing their infrastructure to provide the best services to sports fans and improve and improve audience experience. Um, and to, to continue that quote, the transfer and privatization of clubs aims to achieve qualitative leaps in various sports in the kingdom by 2030 and, and, and note various sports. They're just picking football to start with and building an elite generation of athletes at regional global global levels. Special focus has been placed on football with plans to position the Saudi Pro League among the top 10 in the world. To put this in context, the, uh, the, the Sports Intelligence Agency 21st group places the Saudi, rates the Saudi Pro League as the 58th highest quality league in the world. And this is by strength of its average team. And this puts it between the Scottish Premiership, which is a 49th, but above the Serie C, which is 68th in Italy. So they have grand plans to really up the quality of this league. Um, so, uh, so, so to finish the, the sort of official statements, um, the Saudi Minister of Sport, Prince Abdulaziz bin Turkey Al Faisal, said, quote, by the end of 2023, we'll also offer a number of clubs to be sold to the private sector. And I hope that this will invite more companies from the private sector to invest in these clubs and invest in the sports sector within the kingdom, uh, unquote. Uh, so they're trying, you know, for these to be sort of exemplary and, 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 and setting up uh, clubs to be much more uh, attractive to private investment. The Saudi government said that it hoped that as well as further, further bolstering sport, bolstering participation in sport at the grassroots, grassroots level, the move to privatization would raise the league's revenues from $120 million last year to $480 million U.S. dollars in 2030, while increasing the league's market value to U.S. $2.13 billion by 2030. Um, and speaking of participation in sport, as we know, there's a, a quality of life aspect of Vision 2030. And in Saudi Arabia, participation in sport has increased from 13% in 2015 to close to 50% in 2022. And the number of sports federations has increased from 32 in 2015 to over 95 in 2022. So I want to get to a conversation on this, but it's another big sports move by PIF Lucian. Uh, as opposed to the the live, which is much more externally oriented, uh, this one is directed internally and implemented to achieve you know specific economic, commercial, and social goals. But you know, like everything Saudi does these days, it will also have a significant impact of the, on the sport of football globally. So, Richard, you're telling me there's a chance for us to cobble some money together and get Alfaya FC by the end of 2023 as they approach privatization, because that seems like a, a really good goal for us to work toward. Um, I, I don't well, know how we're going to get yeah. that money, but you know, maybe, a, I don't know. I welcome any suggestions well, there's, there's, from you. Yeah. There's real upside to Alfaya, that's for sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a buy low situation. Absolutely. But not yeah. low. It's just a, you know, maybe a bargain, you know, you only have a, uh, 7,000, uh, uh, sta uh, stadium capacity, we could build on that, work on the profit margins there. Um, no, Richard, I mean, uh, this is, this is a really good one. And I'm, um, I'm interested in this because this doesn't really fit comfortably into the 
international sports washing narrative that seems to be a very easy crutch for people to lean upon when you hear the word Saudi Arabia and sports. And of course, this was a huge week for Saudi Arabia in sports, as you noted. It's it's for this to happen this week is kind of amazing because we had um, the news that Messi was maybe even offered as much as one point six billion dollars to go to Saudi Arabia, but chose Miami. Of course, the live golf PGA mashup merger that literally nobody saw coming uh, has completely dominated the headlines in the US, not just in sports publications, but front page of the New York Times type thing. Um, Huge news there. And you know what, this is like a, this is a a move and a story that I think we would both agree was probably months in the making uh, to set up by the PIF, but then also, um, you know, has a real impact locally in Saudi Arabia. And like you noted, and you were just here, like you can see the the passion in fans here for their local teams. So like it's a real deal here. Like people really have their their squads that they like. And, you know, we were just talking right before the show. Um, I had an Uber driver last night who was just so stoked about Ali Tahad winning it all um, and then getting, you know, two more international stars in. And I'm going to big ones. Ruin, yeah, big ones. Uh, ben Zenema. Ben. So sorry. Ben Zenema. Benzema. Benzema, I think. Yep. And then the other one they brought in as well to the same club. Yeah. You, you got to do this one. I, I actually don't have it in front of me, but oh, uh, we were just uh, talking it's about it. So it's almost impossible. It's, Go. it's, uh, well, we're going to go with Conte. Conte. We're going to say okay. Conte. So I, Benzema. All right. So this is, all right. So this is, this is, and I want to draw later. Sorry, I didn't, I interrupted. I no, not know. at all. I'm glad you came, jumped in right there to, when I needed you most. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this is, um, I want to draw some parallels to the MLS. But anyway, your point is, 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 is spot on. This is really um, uh, 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 to prime the football ecosystem and make these uh, – franchise is not only more valuable, but more accessible to investment and to generally, uh, you know, get best practices throughout this, this system. Uh, again, they're thinking of it as a, as a, as a, you know, a larger entity. It's not just, Hey, let's make, you know, let's get some footballers. Let's make the system better, more competitive, more attractive in the long term, which is why they're shooting to be 10th in the right in, in the world. That'll be a fascinating thing that, that, that happens. So, so Aliti Had. The Tigers. The Tigers. That's such a cool <laughs> shirt, again. by the way. That's awesome. <laughs> um, so they just nabbed uh, Kareem Benzema, who this is who just left Real Madrid and is the Ballon this year's Ballon d'Or winner. So he's older, but he's he's the end of his career, but he's still very good. And I cannot pronounce this, but the guy Conte, who's who 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 is leaving your team, Chelsea to join Itihad, both of them on about $100 million a year contracts. Uh, and there's going to be more. So you've got a lot of reports right now of these teams, variety of teams, with PIF backing, of course, in the mix for Sergio Ramos, Angel De Mario, Modric, Hugo Loris, Firmino, Jordi Alba, Sergio Busquets. I don't even know all these guys. But these are, these are you know, big-name teams, big-name players that uh, Saudi Arabia is now another option. And of course, there's Messi, who you 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 mentioned. But here's an interesting fact, and 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 it sort of ties up with Messi. We talked in a previous episode about the possibility of Messi going to Inter Miami, 
And um, it, it, you know, to me anyway, it made sense because unlike Ronaldo, Messi still got another World Cup in him. And, you know, that next World Cup is going to be in the U.S. He's Argentinian. He's apparently he's a big family guy. He likes to be close to home. He knows Miami. He spends time in Miami. Um, and obviously, David Beckham is there. So, but just talking about the economic side and marquee players and this little factoid I thought was really interesting. All right. So this, we're talking about the MLS, the U.S. Major League Soccer uh, League. Um, since Beckham's arrival as a player, MLS has flourished. The, uh, in 2007, the league consisted of only 13 franchises with the newly added Toronto FC paying a $10 million expansion fee to, fee to join. Uh, in May this year, 2023, San Diego became the 30th MLS franchise for a reported $500 million. Uh, according to Forbes, the average value of an MLS franchise is currently $579 million. It, uh, So basically, this goes on to say, this is remarkable since for that price, you could buy almost any soccer club in Europe outside of the top 20. Um, and Forbes also reckons that no fewer than seven of the 30 most valuable soccer clubs in the world are in MLS. So, and, and by the way, I think, you know, the MLS is rated, I don't know, in the 30s. In terms of top soccer leagues, it's not it's not a top soccer soccer league, um, but you can see, you know, Beckham sort of sparked it, and it's flourishing, it's growing. If you're inve if you invested in a franchise, you're making a boatload of money, um, and you can you, so you can see that model how the Saudis might be looking at it as well. You know, we can create something like too. If we can create a competitive, attractive league and start, you know, upping the, the value of these franchises, it gets a virtuous cycle and it just keeps going anyway. So there's so many things all tied up in this. So it's interesting. So two points to make here. One, Richard, I'm going to my po first point here is that I need to comment. That is such a good point about the MLS and these other leagues, you know, because we've never really. I guess the perception would be, hey, like there's no league that's ever going to compete with the EPL, the Bundesliga or, you know, these other, you know, blue chip leagues that, you know, have always attracted the best players. But we've never really known if any other league could because no other league has had big contracts like this. So, like, we're going to find out. But it's like for a long time, the MLS just didn't offer the same paycheck. So if you are the best players, why would you go to the MLS? Well, now they are the best player in the world plays for the MLS. You know, one of the best yeah. players in the world now plays for uh, plays in the Saudi pro league. So it's like, we're going to, in the next five to 10 years, we're going to find out just how much staying power these other leagues have like the EPL um, versus some of these quote unquote startup leagues that, you know, once the money starts coming in and once you have these big name players, other players will want to play against them or with them so that's a really, really good point, Richard, because that makes that makes sense to me, because I, I was talking to a friend who's a huge Messi fan who lives in Barcelona, and he was saying the MLS will never challenge these other leagues. And I sort of thought, well, I mean, in what in what measurement are you talking about, like interest or fandom? Because it seems like you could change those things and you can change the players who play in it and you can change how much money's that money they get and who owns the league. And then all of a sudden you get some international interest, because just like you said earlier, I believe you said this earlier. I'm so sorry. I'm really tired. But, um, you know, the, maybe you said it before the call, but um, 
you know, Inner Miami's Instagram following went from 1 million to 5 million followers, like the second right. that this was announced and ticket prices went up 20x. So like, I don't know, it seems like if if you were a betting person, you would bet that these other startup leagues are going to make it more of a multipolar world when it comes to football globally. So that I just think that that's such a great point. That's my first point that I want to make in response to you, Richard. That, that was brilliant. Secondly, um, a, another stroke of brilliance that we must call attention to was that my co-host here at the 966 podcast actually called this. We did a segment on this. He didn't mention it. I was going to see if he wanted to mention it, but I noticed and I knew this. Richard called this like five weeks ago and he actually sort of, uh, you know, pulled a little punking of me on the show. He said, hey, he just announced that he's going to enter Miami. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, really? So I just did a segment about him going to Saudi Arabia and he's not. Dang. But in fact, you had this right, Richard, and you deserve credit for that because I think you may have been one of the few people who would have bet this or called this. So that is credit where it is due. That was, that was incredible. And when this happened, when this broke, I was like, oh my gosh, Richard got this right. Unbelievable. So, um, and then the third, yeah, the third point that I just want to make, congratulations, by the way, <laughs> another win for you. You got Al Itahad and then you got this. I mean, like we need to get you a crystal ball, you know, <laughs> but, uh, the, the third point that I want to make is I don't know if it necessarily was a bad thing that Messi didn't go to the Saudi Pro League. Like there's a lot of heat on Saudi Arabia's sporting ambitions right now to put it into a nice little package. It's much more complex than that. But, you know, the PGA Live thing, yeah, for Ronaldo, there was so much going on this week that for Messi then to go to Saudi Arabia, which is kind of would be kind of piling on. I guess I'm saying this as from a PR perspective. I don't, I'm not like, I don't think, I don't think Saudi should be upset or devastated that he isn't coming to Saudi Arabia. And I don't think that I am, I think it's good for the sport that some of these names are breaking off and going to other leagues, not just one other league. So then that's just my opinion, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. And I, I wanted to add to your point about Messi um, and, and the followers. So Al Nasser's Twitter followers jump when, uh, Ronaldo joined them, jumped from eight hundred thousand to more than four million, and went and that their Instagram followers went from two million to fourteen million plus. And one of the interesting things about these major clubs in Saudi um, is that you know uh, the smallest of the four Al Ahly, which which actually was relegated last year, was now coming back to the the, the professional league. Um, they have two point four million followers. Uh, and this would put them like they'd be like tenth in the Premier League, and Al Nasser, which has even a, a larger following, have more followers than every team in England outside of the Big Six. You know, and um, so and the Big Six are what your yeah Chelsea, your team, Arsenal, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, and Tottenham. But but you know it's you can see there's a template here, and it is interesting on both the live and the uh, and the football initiatives for Saudi, like you say, it might've been a little bit of piling on, but in any case, you, you, these are these leagues and, and they, and the Saudi, uh, entity are now global players. I mean, you, you know, if you're, if you're a, if you're a, a major football player, you know, you might go to, you know, you might go to La Liga, you might go to premier league, you might go this and that. Uh, but you know, Saudi is in the mix too. Uh, 
Same thing with golf. Saudi's in the mix too. And this is what they want. It's soft power. They want to have their prestige things, but also their important um, important initiatives for the country's identity and for where they're trying to get with, in terms of Vision 2030. It's all fascinating stuff. It really is. What a time to be doing a podcast on this, following it uh, very closely. Yeah, we I think it. would be a fair description, Richard, of what we're doing every single day <laughs> with our daily newsletter and this podcast. So it is a really cool time to be following this. And it's sort of interesting because it's like, you know, when you put this big reform package together in 2017, there's a ton of big announcements and then sort of a silence of, well, look, this is going to take a while. So, you know, you want to immediately hear an update like, hey, is the line done yet? Are you finished building this 109 mile kilometer city? You know, there's it takes some time. And then you have we're six years into it now. You have essentially like a volcano of stories. You These stories are all building and happening in the background. And then you have like Kilauea today just boiling over a little bit. And you have a, a series of stories all at once. And you're like, well, there's really a lot going on here. So, yeah, Richard, a really fascinating one. And and um, kudos to kudos to Messi for going to Miami. I think that's a good move for him as well, because, you know, he has, like you said, family, but uh, it's closer to Latin America. And um, Miami yes. is a nice city to be in, to have a lot of money. Um, so that should be cool. And, and they made it a the Apple, you know, and, and Adidas, they made it a good deal for him. And he he probably wants to follow Beckham's path. Beckham, when Beckham came, he said, you know, part of his agreement was I have a path to ownership, which he has done. You know, uh, Messi will have the same opportunity. And and so, so you know, whatever the value of, of Beckham's contract at the time, which was, you know, you know, comparatively was enormous and, and very lucrative. You know, the fact that he can now, he had an opportunity and he now has inter Miami franchise, which is, you know, the average franchise value is 579 million, you know, that there's wealth, there's significant wealth. So from what I can understand, it would have been very hard to, to compete with the Saudi offer just quantitatively, uh, but apparently the inter Miami offer was really good too. And and like we say, he's still got some more game in him in terms of the, of the, the global stage. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Richard, really good one. Going to stay on top of this topic, of course. Um, we're turning into a little bit of Saudi football fans. Didn't see that coming. Um, but this is really cool, and we will stay on this. Be, when does the season start in the in the fall, right? This upcoming one starts in like October August or November. May. August, August to May. Okay. August to May. And well, it's coming right to, up. I think they're, yeah. They're, 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 yeah, it is. They're, they're increasing the number of teams, too. So it just, it's hopping. It's just it's, hopping. It is hopping. It's hopping. Richard, my one big thing this week, a uh, little bit shorter, Excellent. but we've we've been on top of the VC scene um, in the MENA region really since the start of this podcast. And then of late as well, as our listeners and viewers remember, we had uh, venture capitalist Iyad Albayuk on a few weeks ago, and he's just the best and he's brilliant. So he's it was a treat to have him on. And I'm going to get back to him in a second, actually. But Richard, my one big thing this week, some mixed news on the VC front in the MENA region. It's a, you know, we discussed this is something we've been following. MENA startups raised $445 million in May 2023, last month, and that was spread across 39 transactions. These figures are, of course, from the latest uh, from WAMDA, which is, we should just note, is really an awesome resource uh, for pe- not just for people in the space as well, but in general, it has great stories and articles on regional startups 
you know, how they're doing it, their stories and, you know, what their, their market entry plan is. It's a really cool like resource if you're into this, but even if you're not, it's cool. It is. Looking these, looking at these numbers, Richard, let's start first with the good. So this 445 million raised last month is a significant turnaround from the preceding month, April, 2023, in which just 7 million was raised across 11 deals. Uh, Richard, we did a segment on that. Ramadan was really not an excuse there because Ramadan was in the same month um, the previous year in 2021, um, excuse me, 2022, and raised $297 million across 29 deals. So, um, you know, there was just a bad month and that's okay. But um, so there was a bit of a bounce back here, Richard, and that's good stuff. Something I was looking at pretty closely after that tough month of Ramadan, though, was what kind of bounce back are we going to get? Are we going to get a large number bounce back? Are we going to get a just, hey, everybody took a month off and we're going to start investing again? Um, and so this this sort of top line figure is good news for the MENA region in general. And then good news for Saudi Arabia specifically is the kingdom led the pack in the total number of deals with 15 in investments, which is actually really good. Um, and our previous guest on the 966 just two weeks ago, Iyad Al-Bayouk, uh, who is general manager of Flat Six Labs, accounted for, I believe, seven of those. So he, he did half of the of the new investments in Saudi Arabia over the last month, which is amazing. And that is really good news for Saudi Arabia because he's very early, early stage seed focused. I mean, like incubator stage stuff, which is what Saudi Arabia needs and what other nations around the GCC need. Um, but onto the not so great news, Richard, the vast majority of this figure is just one deal that was announced last month. And that was the debt financing deal for buy now, pay later uh, startup Tabby, which is 350 million. And Tabby is based in the UAE. So countrywide, the UAE led the pack with $422 million raised across 14 deals. That's 90% of the total raise. So big month for the UAE, but Again, that was mostly just one deal. When you take out Tabby's debt round, and all of this is according to WAMDA, and I suggest anybody go to WAMDA to read. There's more data that I'm not going to get to here, but um, check it out there. But when you take out Tabby's debt round, the total amount raised in the region drops to $95 million, with the UAE accounting for $71.6 million of that. So that's not a lot of money. Um, and so what we're kind of seeing here is it wasn't really Ramadan last month. We're seeing sort of the global macroeconomic landscape not help this situation out at all. But we're also really seeing a startup scene that in the Middle East region that is just not booming, like many are saying that it is. It's still very nascent. These are very small numbers compared to how much money there is here to invest in startups. So uh, and then Richard Moore, sort of not great news. The focus of a lot of these investments is still going into things like fintech, and e-commerce, I mean, those are good businesses and can make money for VCs and for those who are doing startups in those businesses, but they are not really globally exportable technologies, at least not at a large scale. So we're not really talking about things that are going to start really attracting foreign investment because a lot of these things exist in other countries already. Um, so yeah, the other thing, Richard, that's not great overall is that startups with all male founding teams attracted the majority of funding with 92.8%, while startups with male and female co-founders raised 7.2% of the total. Only one female founded startup raised an investment in May, and that was a $10,000 grant given to Egyptian health tech Chefa. Um, so, you know, it is a mixed picture. It's, it's good to see a bounce back from the really troublesome month 
last month. And to be honest, uh, you know, five years ago, this this would have been an amazing month because VC essentially did not exist in the region, at least not in the in the modern sense at all until about 2016, 2017 or, or very, very small number. So it's good to see the bounce back. It's good to see that nice top line number represent a bounce back, but it does show just how nascent the VC space in the region and really in Saudi Arabia, unfortunately, in particular is. So uh, we'll, we'll be staying on top of this, Richard. Um, personal space uh, interest of mine as well. But on this show, like we, we stay on top of this because it really is impactful for Vision 2030. So um, you'd like to see more deals. We, we congratulate Yad Al-Bayouk for his uh, work in the space because it's impressive. We want to see more. Yeah, golf clap for Yad. We'd like to see yeah, more of that. Job, yeah. uh, we'd like to see that at scale. Um, and I think um, there are other solutions that can be mixed in here that, that can help out. So uh, just interesting update here to this uh, story. That's a good one, Lucian. And you're deep into this. I mean, I think you have a you have a, a you know a, a profound and broad understanding of it. So I don't have a lot to add. The only thing I would, uh, the only observation I would make, is it feels like a period of reassessment. And I say that because uh, globally, uh, you know, investment was down significantly um there's an interesting crunch base article here but in the first quarter um you saw basically a 53 percent decline year over year and over compared to 2022 and this is when this is not just you know a particular stage every funding stage was down between 44 percent and 54 percent year over year so in, in some ways the saudi you know environment is mirroring mirroring the global environment and and also, I guess part of this, you know, slow down economy, inflation, whatever. It could be a million other things, but I think part of it is a reassessment, reassessment, or an assessment of where the investment opportunities are. You know, because it seems like you know certain sectors have been fully engaged and and you know uh, aggressively pursued, and maybe maybe those values aren't as good as they were, or maybe they're looking for other things. But I do feel like this is a little interlude here. That it's not a, you know, it's not a, pro, it's sort of part and parcel of the, the ongoing process in Saudi Arabia, but also globally. So, it, it, it you know, Saudi Arabia right now is sort of a, you know, the, the globe writ small. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, there are decisions ongoing now about where to place money and how much to place that will result in, a, in an upturn, you know, in later quarters and not, probably not too long. But I, I think that's happening. It'll happen globally as well. I think so too, Richard. And it's not a bad thing that it's mirroring the international, the global economy, I should say. And you know, Silicon Valley is in a lot of trouble right now because it's tough for them to raise new funds at the VC level. But then it's also tough for entrepreneurs and startups to raise funding from VCs. You have the VCs sitting on, and this figure kind of varies depending on where you look, but it's like $300 billion of dry powder. They're just sitting on it saying, hey, like, this isn't a good time to invest, come back soon. So it's sort of like everything's slower, like gummed up. So it's not bad that Saudi Arabia is mirroring that. It shows their connectivity to the whole system and that's good. Um, and I do expect this to change. And we talked with Iyad Al-Bayouk about this. I mean, this there will be a, an uptick in M&A, which will be nice for the two sides uh, who participate in that for a little bit. And then I, I sort of agree with his assessment that really the start of next year, will be key. And I think at that point, you'll see 
some of this local dry powder start to really get placed in. But again, just like kudos to him because right now what Saudi Arabia needs, in my opinion, is more like, you know, move quickly and break things startups that are really, really risky from an investor standpoint, but like possibly game changing, you know, low success rate. But that's how you really develop an ecosystem because VC is the riskiest of all asset classes, pretty much not including crypto and whatever other far, far alternative <laughs> investments you may find. Um, but uh, yeah, I just, I think Saudi Arabia's like trend over the last five or six years is really good. And, you know, this number isn't great. The number last month was really not great, but I, I think the future is bright. I, I really think that. Um, and again, kudos to Yed because his, what he's doing is like right where the rubber meets the road. So yeah, this is a cool space. And you know what, Richard? It's we love it on the show when we have a lovely transition from from one segment to the other and in and, and a similar theme, and you can kind of easily flow. Let's move now to our really good conversation with two Saudi entrepreneurs, Sarah bin Laden and Renat Al Jeffrey, recent Win Fellows. Uh, they joined the 966 uh, to discuss sort of their experiences and journeys. They were just in Washington, D.C. and New York as part of the, the program, which is associated with Georgetown University. Just really cool, Richard. Awesome discussion. And just one thing to note, um, uh, this interview is uh, goes for about 38 minutes. I'd actually drop in the middle of it. Uh, so uh, I'm really sorry, everybody. I had a really bad internet we, connection. Um, so yeah, that, that'll that explain why I just disappear. I'm sorry. Uh, but I did, it, it which was, was fun. A, it, I got to it, listen to it later. So it was good. Well, it was a bummer because it's always more fun to do it with you. And it's, it, it, you know, we've had numerous incidences. So you had a whole power outage in your, in your area. So I mean, whole power outage. So I texted you in the moment. I was yeah. like, Hey, like I can't, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, and uh, yes, they, uh, these, as uh, these two young entrepreneurs are awesome. And if you're, you know, and, and it's in terms of, you know, venture capital and that sort of thing, certainly. You know, at Astra, Sarah, Sarah L. Jeffrey, I mean, uh, Renat L. Jeffrey's um, initiative, you know, look to invest there in quantum, which is where Sarah bin Laden is. I mean, these are these are really interesting young Saudis. And this is a sort of we've talked about this many times. We have an amazing slate of guests, amazing range. But we love platforming these young Saudi entrepreneurs because it's 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 uh, it's the future. Absolutely. And quantum raised VC money here locally, I think somewhat recently. So yeah. this is, they, they just, re, they represent a really cool story. So please enjoy. We're delighted to welcome on to the 966, Renad Al Jeffrey and Sada Bin Laden. Renad and Sada recently took part in the second cohort of the Atlantic Council's Women Innovators Fellowship, known as the WIN Fellowship, a program launched by the Empower ME Initiative at the Rafiq Hariri Center for the Middle East by venture capitalist Amjad Ahmed, a previous guest of the 966, we should mention. The WIN Fellowship Program is a collaboration between the Atlantic Council and Georgetown University, offering a structured, fully sponsored year-long executive training program, mentoring and networking opportunities with leading U.S. and MENA business executives, government officials, and policy experts. The top participants, and Renat and Sada, are both selected for this, attend a fully sponsored trip to the United States for leadership training at Georgetown. Just so cool, guys. Thanks for joining us, Renat and Sada, and welcome to the 966. Thank you for having us. 
That's a great intro by Lucian. I, I, we want to take a moment to give a special shout out to Empower ME. We're big fans of uh, Amjad Ahmed, who is a very bright guy and very capable. And, he, you know, he, he sort of he keeps doing he, he's still in investment, but he, he's sort of spearheading this program, which we mm -hmm. think is terrific. And we should also do a shout out to some of the other partners, because I guess the, the U.S. Embassy in Riyadh, uh, coordinated on this, as well as the uh, AmCham KSA Women's and Business Committee. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, we, we, we think they're doing great work at both the embassy and AmCham and um, uh, corporate sponsors, UPS and PepsiCo. We're big fans of PepsiCo. We're hoping to have the CEO of, of, of Middle East, Omar Sheikh, come on in a little bit. Um, this is really a prestigious program and, and it, it runs as a year program. It, this year, your, your cohort just finished in March, 2023, started in March, 2022. And just for context, there were 33 women who were accepted into the program. And then just five who were selected, you two included to do a roadshow. But let's go back to the beginning. How did each of you get connected to this program? So I can go first. Um, I was actually doing my day-to-day -day at work and I honestly did not see anything related to this program. And then suddenly I get in my LinkedIn from a best friend of mine, she's like, apply now. And then two days later, she's like, did you apply? And I'm like, I will apply. And then I literally applied a week later, they sent me, uh, you you passed the first stage, uh, we'll do, uh, please fill up the following uh, information. And then I was accepted into the program. So it was a, quite a smooth process, but it was just like, I, I keep telling her. And when I won, I told her I won because you pushed me to do this. And and that was amazing to. Did she apply? Did she apply? She didn't actually, because it's more for entrepreneurs and she's more into like a governmental role. Gotcha. Uh, so that's why. Cool. Uh, similar story for you or not? Yeah, very similar story. So one of my friends just sent me the uh, link for the program and we applied together and then we both get accepted to the program. And what was involved? You, you were, it was an in-place program. Is that correct? How, how did it work once you were into the process? So it was a virtual program. Uh, what happened was um, there was a curriculum um, and they explained to us all the different modules that were part of the program. They were all related to having a business. So you had to have a business in order for you to start this program with them because they took you through all the stages of being an entrepreneur, all the way to the details of finances, and then ending on the note of pitching to actual investors and to actual judges and moving on to the next uh, element of that, which was winning and going off to the roadshow. Uh, and so... They really um, started it out with just explaining all of that. The first entire month was all about explaining what it is that we were to do. It was more about explaining who we are together as the bios of each of the uh, each of the attendees, as well as the speakers that we're going to hear moving forward. They also had the mentoring program, which was like, it, it was a must, it wasn't an optional thing. You had to find at least two mentors and you had to do one, two, three. They also had the peer-to-peer -peer program, which were for us, this is all interesting because one of the best benefits, and I remember uh, my friends uh, in the program also seconded this, and they were they kept saying that the best thing about the program was the network, is mm. because we are talking about people that Renad and I are in the same city. We never met before this program. 
And, and that just tells you how sometimes, no matter how much social media access we have and how much connectivity we're supposed to be in, we really are not that connected. Uh, and, and programs like these are the ones that actually bring us together in the same frame of mind where we get to understand each other and get to kind of grow together. You know, we had uh, very early in the, the 966, uh, Maya Mozaini came on. Uh, I don't know if you know May. She's in the Eastern Province, but she heads uh, uh, the NUS program, which is half. And she was a longtime Aramco uh, executive and then had went out on her own. And and what the NUS does is, is exactly what you're talking about, provide mentorships, mentors for young entrepreneurs and particularly women, because she did not have them when she was going through. She's a she's a generation ahead of you, but so she's trying to make it better for you. So you have 33 women, 33 entrepreneurs in this program, and it's a virtual program. Are you ever together or is it, a, how is it, how does it work? So it was a Zoom program. Uh, we were all on Zoom on different classes. We had the virtual, we had virtual sessions things that we would do on our own time. We had to go through material. We had to answer some homework, whether it was on like a forum and, and communicate with that. And then we had um, every two weeks, we had an, uh, a virtual session together with us, with our professor uh, from Georgetown. Um, and it, they would change them every time, depending on the topic. Uh, we would have an open discussion, we would discuss the assignment, we would go through one of the forums that we had to comment or, or discuss on, and we would also ask questions about things related to our businesses, related to the topic, uh, have group discussions or even group activities in that uh, session. And then we go back to the next uh, module, which is the next uh, part of that program, and we repeat this again and again. So I want to, I want to get to each of your areas, what you're doing individually, Renaud, but you two were one of five. So you already have a hyper-select group. And then they did another hyper-selection to come down to five to do what they call the, a, a roadshow. Did you have to apply for that or were you selected out of the group? Renaud, would you, <laughs> I mean, was it, another, was it another application process or did they yeah. just, uh, these are our superstars, we want them to come over. No, basically it was a pitch competition. So we oh. had, yeah, the pitch. I think they selected 15 out of the 30, as I remember. And then they had us um, go through their pitching competition and then they chose the top five from that. And was right. that in English and in Arabic or like how is the pitch no, done? Just in English. Just in English. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So you win the pitch competition. This sounds like, you know, you know, Eurovision. Yeah, um, Shark Tank. Yeah. <laughs> Shark Tank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you win the pitch competition, which means you're coming to the States and you're going to do this, this delegation and, and you went to, a, uh, can you tell us about that experience? You know, where you went, who you saw, you mentioned, we were talking a little bit beforehand, but I don't want to give that away, but you know, how was that experience? Did you come over together or, and, and did you first meet you and Renan and Sarah? Because one of the fun things about doing this, when I send invitations, you both individually said, I love Renan or Sarah. I would love to do something with Renan or Sarah. So it was, it was very nice. So clearly you guys hit it off. Did you, did you meet in Cheddar beforehand or did you meet in when you did the, did the road show? So when, program, I'll talk about the online. You talk about when we got there. 
So Perfect. online in the program, we honestly just knew each other by names and faces, but we never really had like a deeper connection throughout. We just knew, all right, this is Rina and she has a company called Adasra, but we don't really know a lot of specifics. It was more, we were focusing on whoever was in our teams. So we were divided into teams and she was never in on my team. So we never really got that chance to do a one-on-one. Um, but then when we were chosen for the roadshow, everything changed. And I'll leave that to Renat. So basically the best thing about the program was the networking. Um, and yeah, so they, cho- they chose the five of us and each one of us didn't know anything about the other people. And then we all met in the hotel uh, lobby. And then after that, we started to know each other. And right now, I really love each one of the four fellows. And I really consider them my friends. So, yeah. So Talking it was, about hotel lobby in, yeah. in the U.S. So we waited all the way until we got to the U.S. <laughs> to meet each other. Yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing, both of me and Sarah were in a co-working space, the same co-working space in Jeddah, basically. But we never get a chance to meet with each other. And then, we, <laughs> yeah, we met in Washington, D.C. <laughs> that's the magic of networking that's beautiful so um what was your favorite each of you what was your favorite part of the roadshow and you maybe a couple but if there's one what did you like most the networking of course networking yeah personally it was like being on panels talking with different people with so so many years of experience and then they're sitting there listening to us and wanting to know more about our experience and being super proud of each of the other fellows that is sitting next to you and answering those questions with that confidence, being proud of what she's doing and the hardships that she's talking about because we all relate. And for me, that was the best part of the entire experience. Let's talk about what each of you is doing, the initiatives. You're both young, you know, uh, uh, Saudi entrepreneurs but you're doing vastly different things. And in, in my opinion, serving uh, distinct needs in Saudi Arabia. And, and when I was talking with Amjad about the finalists, and, you know, and, and, you know, this and that, and I said, well, these, I, I'd really like these two. And I'll tell you why. Renad, um, I have a special needs kid. And what you're doing, I think, is amazing. And I also know that he, his mother is the one, his mother is the one that makes his world go. And, you know, she's a tremendous advocate. And I'm fully aware that not every kid gets this. And not every kid has, you know, has the, uh, you know, the, the, the gift or the benefit of a mom who is capable and motivated to be an advocate, but that's really what's needed. And we live in a we live in a million-person county, Fairfax County, you know, outside of Washington, D.C., a, a wealthy county, has lots of services. But even in that milieu, you know, kids fall through the cracks. So if, if we can talk a little bit about what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. Okay. So, um, so I will start by answering what I'm doing. So basically, at Adastra, we are trying to connect um, therapists with families that have kids with special needs. So basically we send therapists to people's houses. So I'm going to start with a story. So a few years ago, I was in the US and over there I had my son Khalid. When Khalid was about two years old, he was diagnosed with severe autism and we really struggled to be able to get his home-based therapeutic services started. 
When we returned back to Saudi, we found out that even the concept of home-based therapeutic services is not yet well-defined. So I thought if I needed to find a good therapist for my son, then I will need to start at Astra. Basically, there is no other choice. So basically, I started this because I needed the service and I needed to use the service. And um, we started about two years ago. And right now we are operating in more than 59 different cities and towns in Saudi. We started with a vision that as long as there is a child with special needs in a small town or even an area in an area where education or therapeutic services is not reachable, and there is a therapist who's capable of delivering these services, then we can just go to that place train the therapist, offer a very high quality um, early intervention services, and of course, offer all of the necessary supervision for that therapist. Are you working sort of both ways, both in providing a networking opportunity for or families with, with kids with special needs, as well as sort of pushing uh, public officials to create more and, and more opportunities and ava more availability for for services for special needs are you, are you sort of between both worlds yeah so yeah so basically if you need to make um high quality early intervention services accessible for all of the different children with special needs then you will really have to get involved with the government and with the officials and change the laws over there so you can give these kids the accessibility. And the good thing about Saudi right now, I'm not really sure how familiar are you with the system right now, but we are just being in, I would say, on a train heading toward the development. So if you want to make a change, you can just jump on that train and make the change by yourself. Like all of the different uh, doors are open. What you need to do is just jump on the train and make the development. <laughs> yeah, and make it. Yeah, exactly. So I was fortunate enough to return back in just the right time and um, started Astra. So if I would have started a few years ago, maybe that would not have been very feasible, especially because we sent female therapists to people's houses, and that was not very acceptable in Saudi a few years ago. But right now, all of the different therapists are very proud of the work they are doing. And yeah. We, uh, we, we've had a lot of young Saudi professionals on the show, and that seems, that's a common theme. I think, Lucian, you'd agree. There's a sense of, the, of, of, of possibility. Like, oh, you know, I can, I don't need to hesitate. You know, I can make, things are moving so quickly and I can have a voice and, and have input and have impact. We've had a number of, of people who've started their own companies or doing really fascinating things in, you know, in your demographic. Um, very interesting. So you're also doing right now, you're, you're in a sort of entrepreneurship program with Stanford University. Is it, is it along the same lines at Astra? Yes. All right. Fascinating. Um, Sarah, can we, let's talk about you. Like I said, I, you know, I may know your, I may know your, your, your hotshot executive cousin who uh, I hope to get on the show and, and this will be great to have you be talking on the show before he ever see, ever has a chance, but you're right in the heart of a really fascinating uh, sector in in Saudi Arabia. And we had uh, a couple episodes ago, Iyad Al Bayouk, who's a country manager for, for for Flat Six Labs, so he knows all about the VC and the seed capital, and, and he knows all about this sector. So you're in e-commerce, which I think 
close to, you know, estimated to be a, projected to be a $13 billion sector by 2025. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got there and what you're doing? Sure. So uh, if I can speak a bit about like how I got into e-commerce, it would mainly start back when I first was in my last year of university. I was a computer information system uh, programmer. We were focusing more on web. It was the beginning of what is a website and how can I make a website? And I was extremely interested in creating e-commerce. And I worked as a web developer for a couple of years before realizing, all right, I like what this is about but I like to understand the business behind it. And I like to connect between the business people and the tech people. So I speak tech, but I connect it better by being a business person, which made me want to go and do my master's in computer information systems. Um, and then I did my master's and I did an MBA uh, in innovation and technology. Uh, and I started in e-commerce at the same time. So I knew the ins and outs of an e-commerce and that it's not only just create a website and that's it. There's so much operation and logistic that comes behind it. And the system is the core to actually make everything start working. Now seeing that and seeing everything that's growing while I was in Canada, I was using a Shopify store. That was pre having any Shopify local here in Saudi, which currently is Zid and Sella. Um, but that was before that era. And, and what I was kept thinking about was like, why don't we have something similar to this? Like why is Amazon only Amazon in the US. Why, why don't we have things similar to that? Why don't we have that growth, that technology, that um, revenue that we can actually generate from the, our existing market that we have? Why does everything have to go out? Um, and then we realized we we're like, because no one enabled them. Everyone is focusing on their own problem and no one is focusing on kind of helping solve the secondary problems. When we took a look at Amazon, we realized that majority of Amazon's revenue was coming from ads or marketing advertisements that is happening on inside of Amazon. And when we looked at the majority of the main, the main players in Saudi, in the Saudi region, we found that majority of them can be the next Amazons just by utilizing ad space directly onto their systems. And that's where Quantum came in. Quantum is basically an ad tech company that provides the technology and solutions for e-commerce companies to actually help them generate a secondary revenue stream and providing them those marketing and technology solutions so they can focus on their core, which is basically providing better services and qualities on their orders. And we can help them provide a better service by targeting those ads, segmenting those ads so that you as an end consumer can actually see ads that are relevant to what you purchase and what you need, instead of just getting random ads that everyone else is getting as well. Uh, it, it it seems like you've done a remarkable job. You have close to 3,000 clients. Is that right? So we have around 3,000 uh, clients on our system today. We work with, so we built the entire ecosystem because when we said ad tech at the beginning, when we came into Saudi, a lot of people have never heard of that word before. Even though they do use Instagram, they know Facebook ads, they just don't understand that the underlying technology is called ad tech which is basically an ad server and everything goes on and everything is more dynamic and automated. So what we built was an ecosystem where we connect those partners, we call them partners, which are considered those publishers or the people who you would publish your ad onto, which are the e-commerce, and we connect them with advertisers all through this environment. And so by connecting those people, that's how we can actually expand our network. So we have clients as big as Lipton, uh, P&G, Unilever, 
Marai, any of the local players that are in FMCG or they're trying to showcase their services. And we just directly connect them with these e-commerce stores directly. Um, do you find in your cohort group, the young entrepreneurs you know, entrepreneurs you know, come from all walks of life, all academic and educational backgrounds? Well, yeah. So I really think that there are many different talents across many different educational levels, but I think not that many people highlight it. So, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, it doesn't matter, right? Not at all. Like I, I've had a lot of friends or even mentors who don't even have a bachelor's education, but they're 30 years in the market. They have the experience and the expertise and they know what they're saying and they know how to explain it. And they're well-versed better than, than, than I am, than I could ever be, you know? And it's, it really depends on what their experience is, how they can actually articulate it and explain to other people, because you can be great at what you do, but if you can't explain it properly, then do you really know what you're doing? That comes up yeah. to the communication and, and like different different aspects and skills that you actually have to to get. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. go ahead, Rena. Sorry. For me, I think it's a it's about passion and it's about the sense of possibility. So you really need to feel that it's possible for you to do this thing and succeed on it. Yeah. And if there are things that you need to change to do it, you have the possibility to change it. Where do you want to see Ad Astra go, Renan? Well, so if we are talking just about Saudi right now, I really want to make early intervention services accessible of all of the children with special needs or developmental delays in Saudi, regardless where they live or their family's economical level. And so, and so you want to you want to move from Jeddah all the way, you know, throughout countrywide, right? And yeah, so right now we are covering more than 59 different cities and towns and even very small areas that education and therapeutic services were not even reachable. Well, that's impressive. And when did, when did you found out, Astra? About two years ago. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, and uh, do you, are you looking, do you have investors? Or are you working with the government and local municipalities? How, how are you building? So until now, no, we don't have investors. So we worked with nonprofit organizations. We worked with insurance companies and we worked with the government. Interesting. I think now is the right time to do anything in Saudi Arabia. Really? <laughs> <laughs> really? It, like the, the doors are open. There's a lot of uh, communication between the ministries and the people. Um, and you're you're seeing so much change happening, whether it's on an entrepreneurial level, whether it's on a regulator, like a regulation level, you're seeing cities being built, new cities being built with so many opportunities that you can jump on and, and, and try to, to see how you can actually solve different gaps in the market. And there are so many gaps, so many opportunities to actually build into it. So the opportunity is now, it's just... How do you start? How do you sustain? How do you maintain? It's like any other environment, but it's just that everything is times 10 because you have to be faster. You'll get left behind. Exactly. So just like a train heading toward the development. And if you want to make a change, just jump on the train. But if you miss the train, then I don't really think you would be able to catch it. 
<laughs> this is very funny. That metaphor of the train, uh, Dr. Mark Thompson, who was, uh, again, a previous guest, he does socioeconomic studies for uh, the King Faisal Center for uh, Islamic Studies and Research, Research in Islamic Studies. And he used that analogy exactly. He was talking about Vision 2030. He said, he, he basically said, I don't really care what anybody else thinks. The Saudi youth have already gotten on the train and it's left the station. And now that yeah. he was saying they've embraced it so thoroughly and the mindset is so profoundly embedded now that as he, as he was saying, you know, you can talk about any demographic, but the young people are taking this and they're going. So it's interesting for you to use that, that, uh, that image as well, Renat, because it seems to be... trains. What's that? <laughs> And quantum, what is quantum? Where, where's quantum headed? It sounds like they're growing quickly and really, and obviously, and as, as, as Lucian commented on, that's a, that's, that's a nice uh, offices there. By the way, um, are you familiar with Mukatafa? They just came out with an e a study on e-commerce. And, and I was interested in what you were talking about, local e-commerce, because what, what this study found was close to 60% of e-commerce is cross-border in Saudi Arabia. So significantly higher percentage than other countries. And so, you know, the, the, the message was uh, Saudi e-commerce companies need to learn to, are, are, are at a competitive disadvantage for a number of reasons, higher costs and this sort of thing, but they need to right-size that percentage. So more e-commerce is, e is, is executed in-country. Um, and but your ad business doesn't matter cross border local exactly it doesn't matter so our goal is hopefully to reach and become the leading ad tech company in the MENA region um, and that's what we're striving for we started with Saudi we're currently operating in Saudi UAE and Kuwait uh, hopefully by the end of this quarter Qatar as well um, and and honestly it's we're talking about globalization and 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 just having offices and people dealing with everything remotely. So we really don't need to be physical anywhere anymore, you know? Um, and that's the life that we live right now because it's fast and it's fast paced and you really need to get on that train that Renato was talking about and you just need to keep going. Um, and so honestly, it is cross-border. Uh, it is something that we will continue to expand and grow. And and, and honestly, it, it there's a huge challenge because there are a lot of regulatory um, laws that are coming up that are being um, put unconstrained onto e-commerce. There is also um, different uh, avenues and, 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 and aspects that are being opened up to them. Um, we're trying to grow uh, in, in the export business instead of increasing our import business. And there are a lot of changes that are happening there. The government is also supporting through a lot of programs whether it's Masha'at programs or even um, funding different university or zones or valleys, as they call them, uh, like Mecca Valley, Wadi, Wadi Mecca, um, and the likes to actually support with also Sanabilin's uh, investments, works with 500 to kind of enable this, Taqaddam, which is in Kaos, so many different programs, accelerators and incubators, garage, they mm -hmm. all work together to kind of, you know, support everything that's happening and, and, build that network because at the end of the day everything is about network you want to grow you want to succeed you want to learn you need a network speaking of 
speaking of networks, both of you were recommended by a friend to join the Win Fellows. They've got another cohort group coming through. Are you recommending your friends apply? We already <laughs> sent it out. <laughs> <laughs> so the network grows. That's beautiful. Exactly. Wonderful. Uh, Renato, Jeffrey, Sarah Bin Laden, thank you so much for being with us on the 966. Uh, a special opportunity. I, I hope we will track each of you and uh, wish you great success in, in your ventures. I, I'm sure that'll be coming. And next time in Jeddah, I'd, lo I'd love to see uh, I'd love to see both of you. Please do. We expect you here in the office anytime you. <laughs>that was our conversation with Sarah bin Laden and Renat Al Jeffrey recent win fellows we thank them for their time they joined us from Jeddah Richard I thought this was really cool it was awesome to learn that they didn't know each other before this program and they met through the program and are now friends uh, just a cool story so just just awesome it's a beautiful story and another shout out to our friend I'm Jenna Ahmed who was uh, heads the empower me program over at the Atlantic Council awesome awesome program uh, we, you know, we got to know uh, Renat and Sarah through that Win Fellows. And, uh, you know, th there's another cohort of Win Fellows coming through that Amjad is going to be, you know, spearheading. Anyway, they do great work. And so congrats to them. And, and you know, we benefit because we get to talk with these fascinating young women. So this is awesome. Yeah. And just echoing your kudos, because, I mean, Amjad is also a VC himself. So he does yeah. this initiative just because he believes in the overall benefit that it will have. And that's just really cool. So that's very selfless of him and, and uh, he's the man. So well done, Richard. Uh, thank you, Ahmed, uh, Amjad, excuse me. And uh, thank you, Renan and Sarah as well. Richard, let's get to Yella. What do you think? Yella. Saudi in a minute. <laughs> Saudi. <laughs> <Yella. laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm getting loopy tired, so you it's really funny. You today. Are well, you're an easy audience. I can do uh, this about anything. <laughs> like you said, Richard, it All was right. the like three three a.m. bedtimes, um, and then a called the Salat Al Fidger woke me up this morning, which was oh awesome. You know, not Look at you. great. Yeah. So I know it's not great. I always love that sound, though. but yeah, you're right. It, it is not good. And if you're waking up to it, it's not a good thing. Um, uh, uh, yelling number one, Saudi Arabia will make a deep cut to its output in July on top of a broader OPEC plus deal to limit supply into 2024 as the group seeks to boost flagging oil prices. Saudi's energy ministry said the country's output would drop to 9 billion barrels per day in July from around 10 million barrels per day in May, the biggest reduction in years. OPEC Plus has in place cuts of 3.66 million barrels per day, amounting to 3.6% of global demand, including 2 million barrels per day agreed last year, and voluntary cuts of 1.66 million barrels per day agreed in April. Yeah, Richard, what's interesting about this is I think when this was announced, reporters got to speak with Saudi energy, energy minister, Prince Abdelaziz, between dinner and dessert, because he said, this is a Saudi lollipop. We wanted to ice the cake. We always wanna add suspense. We don't want people to try to predict what we do. Of course, the Saudis and all producers hate speculators. Um, he said, quote, this market needs stabilization. So um, yeah, I mean, this was a surprise move 
uh, or just a surprise announcement as well. There was that photo that came out um, of all the energy ministers leaving Vienna kind of together looking really happy. So I think the other producers are very happy, of course, with their lollipop. Um, and I think Saudi Arabia is doing what it needs to do. What will be interesting, and there's no way we can kind of get to all this in the yellow segment that's small, but it'll be interesting to see how buying will shift between China and and some of these other big importers. Like, will they find cheap the cheaper crude? I mean, like, is it is sort of like, is that going to change at all? I don't know. So um, this is just sort of interesting, uh, really an important story, but an interesting story as well. And one we're going to have to see play out because we really don't know. You're right. Uh, the energy minister does not like he's, he's called out short sellers consider uh, frequently of late. This is an interesting move. And in the market a week later, you know, as best essentially shrugged it off. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and that's in part because they don't know this. This was a cut for for July. Um, you know, that can be adapted or changed. So it's sort of wait and see. Um, uh, Saudis, OPEX, it's in, a, it's in a tough situation. You've got a very difficult global situation. China is sputtering. You know, it hasn't really come back. Uh, there's projections that the second half of the year, the economy you know, will improve. Um, but there's sort of recession hanging over a lot of economies. You've got <clears throat> you've got discount, discounted cheap oil running around, Russian, Iranian, Venezuelan oil. It's all out there. Um you know, and I think there's probably some stress between the Russians and the Saudis because, uh, again, the Russians are taking some of these markets uh, in Asia. Um, you, I, one of the things that wasn't mentioned, and, and I think it's important for just for for comedy and and good feeling, um, you know, among OPEC, is that the UAE finally got its quota raised by uh, two hundred thousand. It's been bucking for more, a larger quota. And also, you mentioned everyone smiling. I'm thinking um, uh, Nigeria and Angola are probably not because they had their quotas slashed a little bit. And, and that's largely because they simply can't produce to it and they haven't been able to produce to it for some time. So uh, I, I, it seemed like, you know, it, it spiked a little bit and then it's now it's back in that 76, 75, you know, range. Uh, you know, Saudis really want it to be 80 and above and certainly above 75 if they can, but it keeps sort of, you know, you know, gliding down uh, into the low 70s. So we'll see how this, if this, we'll see if this sticks. But again, we've talked about it before. It, it, it'd be, it, it being an energy forecaster in this current environment is, has got to be one of the hardest jobs in the world. Yeah. And Richard, you mentioned a sort of markets shrug to this news, there was also another muted reaction, which I think was interesting, which was from the US. You know, you compare it to like what happened in last fall, October. where that announced, yeah, October. I mean, that was the US was pissed and they didn't really say anything. Now, of course, Tony Blinken, which is another great transition, episode 90 is all about great transitions, Richard, and we'll get to this in a second, but Tony Blinken's in Saudi Arabia right now. There are other things that are a little bit more important to the U.S.-Saudi relationship, I think, which is something we've been advocating for or, or wanting to see for a while. So that's cool. But there wasn't a Joe Biden comes out and says, hey, this is not cool. You know, this is just it was interesting that they didn't really respond to it at all. So 
Agreed. Same, same thing in the April. You know, they, they had the brouhaha after October 2022, uh, but then the raise and increase in, in April, no comment. Increase, uh, just past increase, no comment. And I think that's probably the best way to handle it. Agreed. Richard Yellow, number two. I may have teased this one a little bit. U.S. Secretary of State <laughs> Antony Blinken had a, quote, open and candid conversation with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman about a wide range of bilateral issues, a U.S. official said. Blinken's visit came days after top crude exporter Saudi Arabia pledged to deepen oil output cuts on top of a broader OPEC plus deal to limit supply as it seeks to boost flagging oil prices despite opposition from the U.S. administration. Blinken and the Crown Prince met for an hour and 40 minutes, a U.S. official said. Should note, uh, past midnight, which is kind of cool. Um, I'm on that same program right now. Um, yeah. Covering topics including Israel, the conflict in Yemen, unrest in Sudan, as well as human rights. Um, should just add to this blurb here, Richard. He then flew to Riyadh next day, did a presser about an hour ago. So, cool story. Yeah, you know, like so many things you know, part of a process and it's a good one from our perspective i mean his trip is sort of the latest in a series of visits i mean uh jake Sullivan was out there in early may i think it's interesting this is his first solo trip to saudi i guess he went with with president biden last july um but this is his first solo trip and again looking for th meaningful things there's obviously there's it is funny it is interesting though lucian and we talk a lot about about uh, you know, the frequency and the recurrence of, of words or phrases in, in terms of the public dialogue and, and you know, normalize, normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, the conversation is open and, and you know, it's open, it's out there. So I, I think that's interesting and, and people will get more habituated to it and eventually it'll happen. But uh, other things that were mentioned, clean energy and technology fields, two areas that we really think the U.S. should be heavily involved in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so I was pleased to see that. The other things I was pleased to see was that he went on from that meeting in Jeddah, as you say, it started after midnight when early on in the morning. Um, he went on to uh, to meet with uh, in the Riyadh to meet the foreign minister, Prince Faisal bin Farhan al Saud, to talk about uh, fighting Islamic State. And he's also going to meet with all his foreign uh, minister counterparts from all the GCC states. Again, you know, starting with the July meeting with President Biden last last year, we need to be more diligent, more consistent in in engaging and addressing concerns from our regional partners because uh, they're important to what we want to get done in the world as well as the region. And you know, it, there's no point in leaving uh, leaving relationships to speculation. You know, get out there, talk to people. You know, build trust. Uh, build a, a communication pipeline. Uh, and so in that regard, it's just so much better than than the standoffish 18 months after Biden was elected. I agree. Um, and it's interesting that pretty much as they were meeting, Richard, was the announcement um, of Live Golf PGA merger or like right before. Uh, it would be so cool to be yeah. a fly in the wall for that. Uh, sorry, I just muted myself. It was speaking of prayer times. It was Salat al Maghrib here, sunset prayer. So if you heard that uh, coming in, I don't know, I probably can't take it out. But um, anyway, so yeah, really cool story, Richard. And and this this would have been sort of top level news if it weren't for all the other news headlines that Saudi Arabia generated this week. So really, uh, really yeah. good one.
but important and good in the process. Um, Yella mm-hmm. number three, the Iranian embassy in Saudi Arabia has been reopened at a ceremony attended by Iranian deputy foreign minister for consular parliamentary and expatriate affairs. The previous day on June 5th, the Iranian foreign ministry had announced that the Riyadh embassy Consulate General in Jeddah and the Iranian mission to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation would be officially reopened on June 6th and 7th. Yeah. In- incredible story. This is just, you know, uh, I-, I mean, so um, Iran Deputy Foreign Minister Ali Reza Big Deli, um, it's said at the flag raising ceremony here in Riyadh, we quote, we consider today an important day in the relations of the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The cooperation between the countries is entering a new era. Iran's embassy in Riyadh, our consul general in Jeddah and our office to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation will be officially reopened, he said. So, um, you know, this is sort of one of those file under one of those things. that's just like what would be tough to really imagine maybe six months ago or or would be I mean, what really is hard to imagine is the is the reestablishment of relations. But I mean, this is just, you know, another example of when Saudi Arabia puts its mind to something when Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman says, let's do this, they're going to see it through. And th- this is evidence of that. I mean, this kind of flew under the radar. The photo Richard shared in Arab News um, shows somebody like literally opening the gate. It's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's, uh, you know, this is a big deal and and you know the the iran saudi arabia detente moves forward yeah it is i I mean we included this i think just to mark it i don't know if there's much to say because this is one of those stories that is yet to be told we'll see how it goes we'll see how in-depth it is i mean it's based on on previous agreements the renewed relationship is based on previous agreements so there may be a roadmap for it which is useful um i think the saudis look at this as um a process and, and, you know, and, and, you know, uh, adjusting the engagement level from what it was previously, uh, but are very wary about, you know, every step of the way. And certainly, you know, they want to see specific results and, uh, and, you know, specific change in uh, Iranian behavior in the region. And, uh, you know, to that end, the Saudi embassy in Iran which is, you know, a counterpart, which is also open, is currently housed in a undisclosed hotel because the embassy, existing embassy, was trashed in 2016, you know? So there's a history here, and there's not a history of trust. So these are all encouraging things, and they make great sense in terms of Saudi Arabia's larger foreign policy. But, um, you know, it's going to be a step-by-step, you know, uh, trust but verify process. Yep. Interesting one, Richard. Uh, Yella number four, the IATA, an association that represents around 300 airlines in 120 countries, forecasted that the global aviation industry's profits are expected to reach $9.8 billion in 2023, more than double the $4.7 billion forecast in December, driven by pent-up demand for air travel following the pandemic. Revenue passenger kilometers for Middle Eastern carrier stands at 88% of 2019's figures, showing the airlines in the region have already been making strong progress. GCC carriers will be at the forefront of the surge in passenger numbers, which IATA expects to double in the region to 550 million by 2040. Yeah, another one is just sort of touching 
touching base. I mean, it's this is why obviously Saudi Arabia now has you know is 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 gearing up. Already has one major international airline and is gearing up to add two more in terms of uh, Riyadh Air and the Neom airline. And, uh, you know, last, I guess last year they had a Saudi, Saudi's going to be at the very heart of this, you know, that double, the doubling of 500 million passenger numbers by 2040. I mean, they're doubling to 500 million. The Saudis will be, will be, you know, the majority of that, certainly by 2040. They had 88 million last year, which was an increase of 82% in 2021. Obviously there were pandemic issues there. Um, but they're they're gunning for this. And I have to say, Lucian, we probably should have done it on the new Riyadh Air livery. Because I was going to say, what a, do you think uh, of that wrap job you, they did? Are you, do you like it? You, I think it's gorgeous. And I love the lavender. You know, that's a, that's the new, you know, color of uh, welcome and, and, you know, of the you know, Saudi identity, that that color. And it was I think it's cool. I also thought it was interesting. I don't know if you saw that in today's Saudi U.S. Uh, Sustic Review. The quotable was, um, you know, the new uh, the new uh, uh, Riyadh Air CEO saying there'll be no first class. Uh, Interesting. So there's going to be, you know, and I guess some other other airlines are doing that, which makes sense to me. I don't, you know, the difference between first class and business. I'm sure it's there is one, but it, it seems mostly how much you pay and how much prestige you want to have to do with it. But that's just me. I'm Midwestern. Um, but anyway, it, that 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 livery, that that wrap, as you called it, is really. I thought it really looked good. Would you agree? I liked the look of it. Um, I'm. I saw some like chatter. I think I was like looking at Reddit or something, and and there were some people talking about how airlines have sort of avoided doing darker wraps like that because planes spend a lot of time sitting around outside, and so if yeah. it's sitting around outside in Riyadh and it's got a darker wrap, that thing's going to heat up pretty quick. So that's a good point. I, I don't know if like that is part of the calculation. It looks awesome though. Obviously they just went with, Hey, let's make this thing look cool. But you know, maybe what they'll do is I think what United did uh, where they made the switch and they just inverted the colors so that the white would be more dominant on the top. Um, But anyway, I like it. It looks really cool. I completely agree with you on the difference between business and first first is like a flex and you see those, the first class on uh, you know, like Singapore and it's like an, an apartment, you know? Right. And like, that seems like it might be worth it if you have a family of seven and you're all just like cramped in there, not bothering anyone else. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, business is fine. You delay flat. Uh, so, you know, I kind of agree with that. And I, hopefully that makes business a little bit more affordable. Business is trading at like three X more than it was pre pandemic. Yeah. Uh, which is a weird dynamic happening in, in airline travel right now. But um, yeah, no, this is cool. And, and I, I, I'm i excited about that airline. They've done a lot of good stuff. Uh, good follow on LinkedIn. They're starting to do the like good PR, you know, uh, gifts and stuff like that that look cool. So it's it's oh, fun to see. That's a good tip. I'll, I'll add that. Yeah, Riyadh Air. Um, Interesting, and I didn't. They, but they look sure like things like about their logo. Their logo is supposed to be like looking out an, an airline window, which I, yeah. you know, it's kind of neat to know that stuff. So anyway, um, yeah, good one. And I think it's you for the next. Uh, is it me? Oh yeah, you did the IT. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yellow number five. Uh, maybe you haven't heard the PGA Tour 
DP World Tour and the Public Investment Fund, PIF, announced a landmark agreement to unify the game of golf on a global basis. The parties have signed an agreement that combines PAF's golf-related commercial businesses and rights, including Live Golf, with the commercial businesses and rights of the PGA Tour and DP World Tour into a new collectively owned for-profit entity to ensure that all stakeholders benefit from a model that delivers maximum excitement and competition amongst the game's best players. Yeah, Richard, I don't think we should go too into this because uh, we did a sort of 20, I think it was 27 minute segment on it in an emergency podcast on Tuesday. And so if you haven't listened to that yet, toss that a listen or, or watch that because I feel like we did a pretty good job getting into that and sinking our teeth into it. And I don't think a lot has changed since the big announcement. You've had a ton of reaction none of which was nearly as good as ours, but you've sort of had, well, the only thing I can comment is that this really made waves in the US. I mean, this was a top story on, on CNN, um, which I've had on in my hotel room and it's been just on repeat. It was a top story on the newyorktimes.com and same with Washington Post. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that play golf and it was the talk of the week uh, in those spheres. But yeah, I mean, big, big win, I think, for Live Golf and the PIF here to cement their participation in the PGA and DP World Tour. And a big win for the listeners and viewers, as we discussed last uh, on Tuesday, Richard, we're going to get to see these guys play against each other more. And I, I think that's a win. I think that's great. I mean, I think those are good points. And um, uh, boy, you're spot on. Boy, it's just dominated it airwaves and, the, and and all the commentary and and it's 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 kind of revealing to see how people respond to it and and to be honest um when we talked a little bit about on the segment which i think it was i think it was a good segment and i thought we had to add add some value um you, you know there are, there are plenty of outlets and media and and commentators who will never ever change their opinion of saudi arabia and mm -hmm. so be it that, that's the way it is um there are others who are who are um, have issues with Saudi Arabia and criticize Saudi Arabia for on human rights and other issues, and recognize that some are uh, alleged or, and will identify and, and label some of what they're doing as sports washing. But they also take the time to sort of try and understand it in a larger context about what Saudi Arabia is trying to do. That's few and far between. There's not a lot of people doing that. Not a lot of outlets doing that. But there was such a tsunami of commentary and reaction to this. You found some nuggets of where you actually see some people thinking a little bit about what's going on. Um, and I do think, you know, there was a grudging. If you are, if you, if if you are reflexively anti-Saudi, there was a grudging recognition that this is a better result than an antagonistic relationship and that the game of golf will be will benefit and that the viewer experience will be improved and i think that's you know a, a fact i don't, you know it's it's just a, you know you've now you've got an entity that is um, aligned for the most part well funded uh and we hopefully will see some exciting golf with the best players in the world all together on a regular basis i will say that this is a framework agreement and they were saying you know they repeat that it's a framework agreement so things need to be ironed out and and you know presumably fingers crossed that that will go amicably and smoothly but uh it really is interesting when you consider that way back when 
when Liv started first looking into this, they had hoped to partner with the PGA. Whoever buffed and, you know, went out and started their own uh, own league. And and now they're back and circled back around and now they're partners. So, you know, you you they got to where they wanted to get. And as I said, as I think we both agree, the game of golf is better for it. Yeah, they were rebuffed and they were rebuffed in a nasty way. And that is what makes this story in part shocking because of the, you know, use any weapon in your arsenal approach the PGA took to live, which was not only will we not work with you in any way, but we are going to malign the players that are leaving. We're going to insult the backers of the new tour and, and fans of the new tour. We're going to basically say and do whatever we can to make sure it doesn't succeed. So that adds to the shock value here, I think, is that, hey, like, you know, these guys were really, really suing each other so hard and just, you know, absolutely going toe to toe with each other. And, you know, looking back on it a little bit, Liv was not really insulting the PGA or the DP World Tour at all. I mean, not in public, not, not anywhere close to the way that the PGA, both players and Commissioner Jay Monahan were doing to live golf and it's backer the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. So that's what makes it sort of like, Oh my gosh, they, they merged. It's like, you know, um, I mean, it was just sort of like nobody expected it. And I think that was part of the reason because, you know, and you can go onto Twitter and there are like 10 different clips of Jay Monahan saying things. I guarantee that he would wish that he could take back now. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but yes, go back and listen to that segment. Um, it should just be the previous, it's not a full episode. We're not calling it episode 90. This is episode 90, but it's sort of a, you know, <laughs> we emergency pod is not, it's dorky, but go back and listen to that. It's 28 minutes. We do kind of get more into it. If you love the golf angle that we take here, if you don't, um, we make this easy to skip. So, uh, yeah. uh, just special check it out. Content. Special, special content, special content, added, yeah. in, added insight. Added insight. Yes. Um, agreed. Uh, Richard, yellow number six, the UK government will be eliminating the need for visit visas for individuals from the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, Oman, Bahrain, and Jordan. Instead, these individuals will have the option to obtain a electronic travel authorization that will be valid for two years. And the cost for this will only be 10 pounds or 12 bucks. The change will align the entry requirements for golf travelers and Jordanians with those of U.S. and Australian citizens. Uh, that's cool. I missed this. Good one. We uh, we included for for a simple reason for me. You know, Hussein Ibish, who we really think is great, has been on the show several times and will be on the show again. Just really a bright analyst senior resident scholar for Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, another great organization here in Washington, uh, was talking about uh, Tony Blinken's visit to Saudi. And he had a number of comments, but he said an interesting thing. He said, quote, the relationship now looks more like the way the U.S. relates to some European partners, unquote. And then Hussein talks about another one of the things. It's an overlooked thing. I think if you've been a partner with with the U.S. for many many years in your Saudi Arabia, and uh, you've been in the trenches on some key key um, initiatives and projects and investments and that sort of thing, obviously you've been crossways and that sort of thing. But you're always you're always treated sort of as a as a um, you know a, a problematic 
partner, you know, all these issues. You're not, you know, you're not a NATO partner. You're not this or that. And I think the Saudis, something like this, I think it was included, you know, just that, just that finish right there, the last sentence, this change will align the entry requirements for Gulf travelers and Jordanians with those of U.S. and Australian citizens. You know, the Saudis and the GCC, other states, but particularly in Saudis, feel like that's where they should be. They should be with the, you know, the Australias and the North Koreas of the world. And, and, and that's the type of partner they are, and that's how they should be treated and their citizens should be treated. So anyway, I, diver- I digress, you know, but, but, you know, this little tidbit actually speaks significantly to the evolving relationships that a lot of countries are having with the GC states and with Saudi Arabia in particular. Yeah. And Richard, just to add to that, I've, I've heard, I feel like I've heard the last few times I've been here, some grumbling about the U.S. visa situation uh, for Saudis and and people, you know, avoiding travel because they don't, you know, want to get stranded and the costs and the hassle. So, um, you know, they're, they're, I'm, I'm hearing complaints on it. And and so this is this type of stuff is good. I saw a really cool article, Richard, and this is, again, another digression somewhat recently. And it was a New York Times piece. It was actually from January and it was talking about all the it asked a bunch of random celebrities and thought leaders what will be obsolete in 20 or 30 years or what will make you cringe from the early 2020s. And one of the answers was uh, needing a passport. Like looking back on that, that's just a massive hassle that eventually may be done away with. So inshallah, that happens. Um, But this is good Mm -hmm. news, Um, especially for Saudis looking to beat the heat, going to London for a long weekend or a week or part of the summer uh, will be welcomed for sure. So, um, Richard, good episode 90. Congratulations, man. This is awesome. Congratulations to you. There's nobody I'd rather do it with. This is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I believe you mean that, but if I were a really, really attractive female version of me, I bet I could convince you to change your mind. But, um, other than that, uh, I feel the same way about you and this was a great one and we'll be back next week, um, with 91. Beauty. Look forward to it.